um, and I went to go take the MCAT. And the, and the first time I went to take the MCAT, I overslept. My roommate and I both overslept. So we ran from our, our off-campus housing to on-campus to get to the door just as it was about to close. And we stuck our foot in the door, and they let us in. Uh, they should have left us out because <laughs> the score got <laughs> back because I didn't know I was supposed to study for the MCAT so I didn't even study for it hey guys real quick Dr. Dale here alright so I want you guys to do me a favor before you start this episode please hit that pause button and click subscribe or click follow or click like whatever it is we work really hard to bring you guys this good information to uplift the entire community and we really appreciate you guys supporting our efforts and our work love you guys Enjoy the episode. Ooh. I want them bad like a daddy, yeah. Only do it like flogger, yeah. I'm kicking flavor, no saga, yeah. Ayy, I like them blues. I might go Janet like Jackson. I got them option, yeah. It's all about progression. Life is like a blessing. Everything a win, loss is like a lesson. Ooh, ooh. Yeah, ain't no time for stressing. I've been really stepping. Ooh, ooh. Yeah, if you wanna go get it, stop playing around. Really got on racks, ain't playing around. Wanna go get it, stop playing around. I am super excited about my guest that I can't tell you enough about this man. I'll tell you in a second, but before I tell you that, a um, couple of announcements. Um, first of all, Happy New Year. It's, it is 2021. We made it. 2020 was a rough year and, you know, probably the roughest that a lot of us have seen. I, I'll tell you, I had friends, you know, get sick with COVID. I went to funerals of friends, you know, did all that stuff. And 2020 was a rough year, but it's going to sound funny me saying this, but, you know, hey, you guys, if you listen to my podcast, you already know my my, my perspective on life and faith. So I'm, I'm going to turn to the Bible where I turn, Romans 8.28. All things work to the good of those who love him, who are called according to his will. So it was a rough year, but, you know, whatever positives we have been there, we got to turn around and look at them. All right. So that's first thing. Happy New Year. Second thing I want to tell you guys, a couple of announcements. Black Men and White Coast Youth Summit. I know we've been getting so many messages about this. So you guys are sending us messages on social media, emails and all that stuff. Um, we're super excited about it. It is different this year, right? I know a lot of you guys want to come in person, but we're not doing that because of COVID. So we're having a virtual summit, and I'll try to remember to put the link down below. So click on the link. You can register for the virtual summits. We are limiting the space because these virtual online summits are expensive. So we are definitely limiting the seats. So get your ticket now. Register now because once we're cut off, we're cut off, and we can't let anybody else on. All right, so grab your virtual summer tickets. There's going to be a lot of fun stuff, a lot of cool stuff happening there um, virtually. A lot of growth is going to take place there. Um, and the last announcement I will make, which I'm super excited about, is the documentary. We've been talking about this documentary for a long time. We've been working on it for a long time. And this is this is eight years in the making. Most of you guys don't know, but I've been planning this thing in my mind for the past eight years. And to see that it's finally finished. And when I say finished, I mean it is finished. I'm about to submit the final legal stuff in um, this week. And all that's going to be taken care of. We already have, I mean, we have top medical schools in the country. I mean, the top medical schools in the country. And over hundreds of screenings and stuff. So a lot of schools are already planning on screenings. Hospitals, libraries are going to be doing virtual screenings throughout Black History Month. It's going to be so amazing. I'm super excited. And with that said, let me tell you about this guy we've got on the call today. My guy, Dr. Cedric Bright, my mentor for almost a decade now, probably. And um, I, I say with that said, because he's also one of the star features in our documentary. Um, too many accolades to say for this man, but uh, before I, he's on the call already. So before I formally let him kind of get on here, I was going to tell you, I met him when I was a 
intern position. So I finished med school in Missouri, went out to Duke for residency. He was a Duke. I was a Duke. I met this guy. And I remember seeing him in the hallways and be like, man, who's this guy? He's got that swag about him. You know, smart people are laugh. People like to be around him, laughing him. Um, long story short, man, we've been running since, and he's been one of my greatest mentors since then. And I learned a lot from him. And um, I mean, it's just been been amazing to have this guy in my corner over the over the years. So, Dr. Cedric Bright, welcome to Black Men and White Coast Podcast. Wow, thank you, Dale. It's an honor to be with you today, and Happy yeah, New yeah. Year to you. Thank you, thank you. Happy New Year to you. Uh, you know, and I'm not gonna go into all the accolades, but I, I could say, you know, I, I just kind of stopped it right there where we met. But you know, of course, he's he's been president of National Medical Association. He had a, um uh, one of the dean roles at UNC, um, dean of admissions right now at ECU, a Brody School of Medicine. So so many things I can go into, and I, I didn't want to go into because I didn't want to not do you justice. But but um, you know, it's all love, and just want to say thank you for being on the show. And I'm super excited. I finally get to let people hear your story because you you. You listen to so many other people's stories and you help so many other people, but I think it's time that people sit back and listen to your story. So if, if you're cool with it, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you a whole lot of questions here so we can get into your life a little bit. Fire away, Dell. I'm glad to be a part of this. Yeah. So, um, you know, anytime I talk to you, you know, the first thing that kind of comes to mind with, with me and you is mentorship. So I'll take, we'll, we'll take them way back to the beginning of your story um, here soon, but even before we do that, when when you hear the name Cedric Bright, people think mentorship. So, what got you so into mentoring people? Like, what was that? Where did that drive come from? Because I'll tell you this: a lot of people say, "Oh, I'm a mentor," or "I want to mentor." A lot of people tout this thing like they're mentors. Mentoring anybody for real, right? Or they might have a few conversations here and there, but you mentor people. Where did that drive come from? Well, Dale, um, I have to tell you that you know. It, it came from my family to begin with. My mother and my father, they were, uh, they were instrumental in helping me understand that life is better when you give more than you get. And that they were community servants. My grandfather was a community servant. And, you know, it, it was just, it was in our lifeblood. It was part of our heritage. And as I came along through medical school, through undergraduate, you know, I had some some mentors who were who were good for me that did not look like me. And I was always looking for mentors that looked like me. When I went to medical school, I didn't have mentors that looked like me. And so at some point in time, I made a decision that if, if there was any way that I could be a difference maker, it was any way that I could, could fill the void that I had as I went through my professional development, uh, I, I would put in that effort to do that. And I was fortunate enough by grace uh, to go into academic medicine. And I've been putting, I've been trying to stand in the way, to stand in place uh, for those who had nothing that looked like them. And so that, that's kind of where it, my, my, in my, uh, where it all started, as I put it that way. I love that, man. I mean, so much I could unpack even out of that little segment right there. I could talk to you for about three hours based on just the things you said in that little piece. Um, so much stuff could be come out, come out, come out of there. But let's go. Let's go back to the the family aspect of it. Um, so tell tell us a little bit about your family. Tell me about your parents. What did they do for a living? How did you get interested in medicine? When did that interest start? You know, was it something your parents suggested? Uh, you know, you said that. I love how you started. You said it all started with the family. So family is clearly important to you. And there's somebody who knows you personally and, and know your family. I know, I know that it's important for you now, but tell me from when you were a boy, 
you know, how were you, what was your family, what was your home life like? What did your parents do? How did they inspire you? How did they encourage you? How did they empower you? So, Dale, um, I was raised in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Both of my parents were public school teachers. Um, and so I spent a lot of time with my grandparents in the afternoon waiting for them to come home from school. And the story goes that one day that my brother and I had come home from preschool and we were out in the backyard and playing around and came past my grandmother. And my brother said to me, Cedric, when I grow up, I want to become an engineer. And I said to my brother, well, that's great, Andre. When I grow up, I think I want to be a doctor. And all of this came from a series of books that talked about this is what a doctor does, this is what a nurse does, what an engineer does, this is what a fireman does. And we had gone through those books and we had made these decisions probably about at age four and five years old about what we wanted to do for the rest of our lives. Um, and so, you know, we went on playing, you know, and doing what we were going to do. But fast forward 20 years later, you know, my brother is an engineer and I became a doctor. And wow. so having parents as educators, you know, when other kids were you know, playing outside, many times we were in the house reading books. And I remember my parents buying uh, the World Book Encyclopedias back in the day. And, and that's what I did for pleasure. And for pleasure reading, I read encyclopedias and just, you know, I was a nerd. I just, I just craved knowledge and I, and, I, and, I, and I sought it. And I always wanted to be the best in my class. I always strove to be the best in my class. And I took pride in the work that I had because my father always told me that that's one of the things that the, that the world cannot take away from you. And that's your education. And that once you have your education, it's yours to use for the rest of your life. And I took those words to heart and I really delved into making myself the best that I could be in my academics. Now, was I was I good all the time? No, I had my pitfalls uh, along the way. Um, but that's life. You know, nothing goes according to plan all the time. Uh, there's always, as, as you would say, the Bible tells us that we will have trials and tribulations. But what does it say next? But be of good cheer. And so I, that's just how I kind of went about my life. Amen. So, so, so that's interesting because I'm at this place in my life now with my kids, right? So I've got a little um, four-year-old right now, seven-year-old, and a and a nine-year-old, and mm-hmm. we we strongly encourage them. Some might say make, but we strongly encourage them to read. Um, of course, the four-year-old can't really read. Well, the seven-year-old's getting into it. The nine-year-old can, you know, of course, he can read, um, but they don't love reading, right? They don't love reading, and and I know some of their friends. Some of your friends who are their age, some of them just love reading, some of them hate reading. So there's this wide spectrum. It sounds like for for you, you said that you were always in the house reading. Now, is that something your parents said, hey, you guys need to go in and have this reading time? Or is that something you would have just done on your own anyways? I think it, over time, it was something that my parents encouraged while I was young. And I just, uh, I had a seventh grade teacher who told me that, uh, that first off, he told me that life isn't fair. So whoever told you that life was fair, you need to change that and understand that it's not. But one of the ways that you can improve yourself in life is by reading. And he he re-emphasized the message that my my father and mother had been telling me. uh, And that led to me even more going into reading. Now, at the same time, I had two things that I was doing. I was academic and I was Mm -hmm. athletics. I played basketball starting uh, when I was 12 years old and I played every year somehow all the way up until age 37. So, wow. you know, in two years of, of playing JV basketball in college. 
uh, and practicing with varsity, but not getting able to suit up for the varsity. So, you know, athletics and academics have always been my pole marks uh, for my for my life. Athletic, that athletic thing is funny, right? Well, you know, you've seen kids. Um, you know, my son absolutely loves basketball. So we're this we're at this stage in our life right now where we're trying to decide how much do because basketball. Because I don't want to, I don't want to. You know, my parents always told me some time I was little. It's like, yeah, go play your sports, but understand, hey, it's got to be about academics. And we're at the stage where I mean, my kid's pretty, he's pretty good. So, like, hey, do you invest so much in it, or do you not invest so much in it? And and I, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this whole idea for people who are in a situation like I am, right? Because sports is huge in the black community and not every community, but particularly in the black community, you're talking about basketball, football and stuff. So how, how do you, how do you give them that balance and saying, Hey, you know what? I want you to, to excel athletically. However, it's gotta be about the books. Understand it. I was watching, uh, I was watching something recently um, and some, there was a coach or an athlete, I forgot who it was, but he basically said, Hey, you know, academics by themselves are great. Athletics by themselves are great. But if you have that combination, that's like dynamite. So how do you how do you deal with all that? Yeah, well, you know, I, what I would tell you is that um, going up in middle school, uh, my parents instituted a policy that you know if I didn't have the grades, I couldn't play the games. And so the compromise that we came to is for every hour that I spent in practice, I spent an hour to an hour and a half in academics. Oh, nice. And so you know, I would be, I'd be. I didn't have as many distractions as, 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 as the children do today uh, with all the games and electronics and so many other things back in my day. You know, we just kind of we just barely, cable television. had just started back then. So wasn't as many distractions. So it was easy for me to kind of get in a habit. Uh, yeah, we, uh, we're, date, we're, we're dating you now. Date, dating yourself now. Cable television. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, so, you know, coming home from practice and just going, you know, eating dinner, you know, and going straight into my work for the night until, you know, 10, 1030 at night and go to bed. Huh. So I developed a discipline, I guess it's the best way of putting it. Nice. So um, let, let me go back to, you know, this idea of when you were, you know, four or five with your brother saying you want to be a doctor, engineer, which I think is great. You know, I write these doctor doc series, so it's good for me to hear you say that. Because it, it, it makes me feel good. I think is maybe some of these kids that are reading these children's books that we're writing might actually that might really have this impact on them. So, you know, you had this idea. Say you're four, five, six years old. You want to be a doctor. Your parents are encouraging you to, to read and such. When you got to I don't know, let's say high school or something like, what steps did you start taking in your life? Was it just I want to be a doctor, or did you actually start doing things to move you towards that goal from a young age? And were your parents encouraging you to do things to move towards that goal, or was it just I want to be a doctor. And then you got to college and became pre-med. I, I wish I could say it was that simple, Dale. Um, you know, what my, my background is that my parents, as I told you, both public school teachers, they made the determination that I was not going to go to public schools and they sent me to private school. And so I ended up going to a boarding high school in Alexandria, Virginia. And um, I was in my class. There were three blacks in my class. Can I, can, um, I, can, I, can, I, can I pause you right there? Explain this boarding concept. I get it. Um, but I think not quite understand fully what the boarding high schools are like. Could you kind of detail that? Like, did you go to one where you lived away from? Did you live at home still and get to do it? 
Oh, no, no, no. I, I lived in Alexandria, Virginia, on campus of this boarding school, meaning that I was there all the time until we had breaks, and then I would come home if I could. And how old were you uh, when you went out there? I was, in this, I was a sophomore. Wow. I was a sophomore in high school when I first went there. Wow. Um, and the school was a, 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 a aristocratic Southern finishing school. Um, and I got called the N-word so many times, um, and disrespected so many times. I, I spent my first half of my first year fighting all the time. Um, but eventually the thing that I learned, Dale, was that I was giving people my power every time they would say the N-word to me and I would get mad. And so what I learned about halfway through my sophomore year was I'm not going to give them a reaction anymore. Hmm. And I stopped reacting to them. And so what I learned from them is not what they call you, it's what you react to. Huh. And once I took away that reaction, all of a sudden they stopped calling me that word. And then the next thing I said was, I'm going to beat you at your own game. I'm going to beat you in your academics. And that's when I became really serious about that because I was already killing them and playing basketball hmm. and playing football. So I didn't have that to worry about anymore. What I needed to do was to focus on my academics and make sure that I did well. Well, the bottom line of it is that I did do well. I made the dean's list. I made the high list. And out of my classmates, of, of my 75 classmates, I was the only one, well, only one of two who got admitted to an Ivy League college. And then they turned around and told me I only got into the Ivy League college because I was black. <laughs> Who told and you I that? Said, your, yeah. your classmates told you that? Right. Yeah, that's what my that's what my white classmates told me. Wow. And so what I said to them was, so what was your GPA? And then that was the end of that discussion because my GPA was higher than theirs. Interesting. So what do you so what what do you learn? So there's there's some kids listening to this right now and parents and everything too. What do they what do they take out of what you just said? What is your lesson? Um, you know, the specifically around the part of what was your GPA? This was mine. Like, what is there to be learned out of that? So a couple of lessons. First for parents is you have to prepare your students, you have to prepare your, your children to help them understand who they are and not, and more importantly, whose they are. Uh-huh. So my parents instilled to me what the, what the mantra and the morals and the character of being a bright and then they talked about how we were all related to God and how God is our, our leader. And we follow what God tells us to do through the Bible and understanding that that's whose we were. That's who we had to report to in the end. That's who we were going to have to give an accounting to. And so I understood in going to Episcopal that, number one, I was I was a bright and there was a certain level of expectation with that. And then the second part was I had to understand whose I was such that when people started giving me the negative messages and calling me all types of names, I had to understand that that was not who I was and be resilient in that moment and not let it consume me such that I become hateful. I had to learn how to forgive, to forgive the folks who were giving their transgressions to me, uh, even though I didn't forget, I did forgive. And so, like, I had one guy in particular that used to just torment me. He was from Charleston, South Carolina. And one day I was out on the front lawn hitting golf balls uh, on, our, on our front lawn of our high school. 
and I saw something shining in the grass and I reached down and I picked it up and it was a class ring. It was a gold class ring. And I looked at it on the inside was the person's name who was my tormentor. And so I had a decision to make. I said, now, do I give this person back his ring or do I just keep this ring? Okay. And eventually I decided to give it back to him. Well, the first thing he said was, I don't believe that you're giving this back to me for the way that I treated you. And what I said to him, but it is not my right to keep it because God knows that I would have done that. And so by knowing whose I was, I made the right decision. And by knowing who I am, I was able to feel the confidence in my character to be able to forgive that person and give back the property that did not rightly belong to me. I love it, man. And so that's a long story that really didn't quite answer your question. No, it did. But- I, I did. And I'll tell you why. Um, so we do, you know, we run this program called Pre-Med Monday. So every Monday night we do stuff with pre-meds across, across country. And the thing that we're always telling them is, you know, we say it's not about becoming the smartest doctor. It's not about becoming, you know, the, the best surgeon who can, who has the best hands and stuff. All this stuff is cool, but that's the easy stuff. That's the stuff you're going to teach you in school and you'll be able, you can learn how to do that stuff. And I tell them the reason we invest so much time in you guys right now is because we want to be there at the forefront of your character development. We want to develop right. your character before you get into, you know, all this mess that's called medicine. And, and what you're saying right there is pretty much saying that, from an early stage, your parents had set things in your life to get you to understand what your character was. And you were able to make that's a that, you know, like you said, a lot of people could have easily taken that ring off and pondered or whatever, made a little cash. But yeah, you had yeah. that character development. And that is why so many people love Dr. Cedric Bright as a mentor right now. It's because that character started when you were so young. You're awfully kind, Dale. Yeah, that, that, You're awfully kind. That's what, that's, that's what, and you know, at times we talk about this, at times I get sad, right? Um, and I look around and you, you know, you see stuff in medicine and you just wonder sometimes like, man, where's the character of medicine sometimes? And I'm not, I don't, I'm not going to be one of those downers that makes see my medicine back because I love medicine. I would do it again. I'm one of those people who's completely pro-medicine careers, right? But, you know, sometimes you see something, you're like, man, where's the character in that? And, and, you know, what you just described and what you just said, I hope people hear that and I hope people take out of it what, what I want them to, because, getting that focusing on character development from a young age is so critical for the things you do down the lines. Yeah, it really is. But the character is something that, that, that you learn from observation and you learn from experience um, and you learn from mentors. Um, and I was fortunate to have all of that, you know? Um, and there's some folks that don't have a lot of folks that can be their role model who don't have parents that are spending that much time with them. And, um, and, and my heart goes out to them. And that's why I do what I do, because I try to stand in the gap. That's, that's what I try to do. I try to, I try to impart the lessons that I've learned such that people don't make the mistakes that I've made. And I'll tell you, when, when people like me who are coming after you, like and you already know how I feel about Dr. Ellis Ingram, too. Right. When I see the Dr. Yep. Ingrams of the world and the Dr. Brights of the world, those are the things that motivate people like me to want to do the same thing and try to stand in the gap. And we hope that the people who listen to this podcast, we hope that they want to stand in the gap no matter what race you are. Right? We hope that's the idea. Let me, let, me, um, let me move us on into your college years then. So you went to the boarding school, you know, which by, by tub you think about uh, you know, a sophomore high school out there by themselves dealing with racism. That's crazy in and of itself, right? But you still succeeded right. and thrived out there. And you go to Brown. You end up at Brown, correct? 
Yep, yep, so, yep. So what was it? Did you start off with Brown? Did you start off pre-med? Um, and what challenges? I want to. What were some of the challenges you had while you were at Brown? Was it as easy as you thought, especially playing basketball? Well, I'm going to try to make this as quick as possible because there were so many challenges. And we um, want to hear them. That's why people are listening because they want to hear those challenges. So I, I, I started off well because I came from a, a, from a pre-college high school. So the adjustment to college was easy because I'd already been away from home for three years. So I knew how to wash my clothes. I knew how to find food. I knew how to go to sleep on time. I'd already developed that discipline to, to learn how to study uh, and, and be successful. And so my freshman year, I did quite well. And I started off as a biology major. But in the middle of my sophomore year, I just kind of realized biology wasn't something that really, really uh, appealed to me. Um, in fact, I was just saying if I had to memorize another phylum and kingdom, I was going to croak. And, <laughs> and, so let me, let me, I, and let me ask, were you biology pre-med or just biology? Just biology. Well, biology with knowing that I was pre-med because okay. there, there, was, there was no such thing at Brown as a pre-med major. So, okay. you know, you had to major in a, in a subject matter and then do the prerequisites. Okay. And so I decided, well, let me go into chemistry. Um, and then after the South, I, I pledged a fraternity at the end of my freshman year and came back the next year as a sophomore, and I acted that fraternity that first semester. <laughs> what frat? If I, you don't mind, what, what frat was that? That's Omega Sci-Fi, brother. <laughs> all right, there you go. go. There you go. And so so all the all the Q-Dogs out there, I'm not, I'm not frat, but all the Q-Dogs out there, see what y'all produce, man. Y'all produce high-level doctors like Dr. Cedric Bright. And I'll tell you, another one of my great mentors, Dr. Mark Neve, I believe he's a Q-Dog too, right? Yes, he is. Dr. Neve is. That's correct. And Dr. Frank Jones as well. All right. Y'all doing your thing. Yeah, we doing our thing, man. Okay. Let's go back to the acted like a fraternity. I want to hear the acted like a fraternity part. So basically, I was out. I was just being out, and my grades suffered that sophomore year. And I went to go see my pre-med advisor after my first semester. And he said, uh, okay, Cedric, what's the story? So I told him the story. And he said, okay, well, listen, you know, I've been trying to tell you, you don't have to major in the science to go to medical school. And I said, okay, I hear you, I hear you. And so that's when I made the determination that I wasn't going to major in chemistry because I didn't have the math skills. And I decided, okay, I've been taking these courses in this, in this topic called semiotics, which is basically the study of film cultures uh, and how they present themselves in media. Uh, which is basically Brown's equivalent to communications major. And so I said, okay, I'm going to major in film uh, and I'm going to take the prerequisites and I'm going to go from there. Now, the second thing he said to me was that Cedric, it, you, everybody falls down in life, but it doesn't matter that you fall down. It's what you do afterwards. And he said, now, if you can show an upward slope in your GPA uh, all the way into your senior year, you still have a chance to go to med school. So basically what he told me, my dream was not over because I had one bad semester. And so I ended up quitting basketball um, in that second semester. And how was that decision? Was that, um, how hard was that for you to do? Because you, I imagine you probably fell in love with basketball by then, or were you just kind of doing it just because? I, I was doing it because I love the game. But at the same time, I was realizing that I'm not going to do anything in life for basketball. I'm not going to the NBA. I'm playing basketball on a JV team at an Ivy League school. So I'm not going to the NBA. And so that's when I said, I need to start focusing on some other things in my life. And that's when I went back to really focusing on my academics and 
making sure I got myself together. Um, and then, you know, I, I managed to do good grades the next couple of years. Uh, but by the time I was a senior, I only had like a 2.8 science GPA. Um, and I went to go take the MCAT. And the, and the first time I went to take the MCAT, I overslept. My roommate and I both overslept. So we ran from our, our off-campus housing to on-campus to get to the door just as it was about to close. And we stuck our foot in the door and they let us in. Uh, they should have left us out because <laughs> the score I got back because I didn't know I was supposed to study for the MCAT so I didn't even study for it uh, Dale and so yeah so my score showed that uh, oh, wow. I realized that I was not going to be able to go directly from, from undergraduate to go to, to med school uh, so I ended up taking a year off let me, let, let, let me ask did your roommate score show it too or no uh, no he didn't do that well either because he didn't study. Neither one of us had studied. We just thought because we had already taken the classes at Brown, we should be okay. Uh, and that was not the right answer. And so um, I ended up taking a year off. And during that year off, I, I worked as a paralegal in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And, um, Fascinating. So you, you were a film slash communications major, and then you went to work as a paralegal. Well, it was the one job that I could find in Winston-Salem that allowed me to wear a tie. And so um, I, that's what I, w I wanted to do. I wanted to do. I wanted to continue to dress the part that I wanted to become. Okay. okay. And so um, the short story of that is, is that I ended up being motivated from being on that job to really get into my studying for my MCAT. And on my third attempt at the MCAT, I finally got a score back that I thought I could apply with. Um, so that's so, right so after that. So you okay? So you took the test twice, but you did not apply because you didn't think the score was high enough. I uh, yeah, I, I took the test three times. Okay, before and I so, finally so that, got the score that I thought I could apply with. But so the, so the other times you didn't apply. So I only applied to medical school one time. So I took it. I took it in the spring, and I took it again in the fall, and then I took it again in the spring. And that's how I ended up taking it three times. So now what's the what's the lesson learned there? Because you, I get it all the time. So I know you get it all the time, right? People ask you, should they apply with their score that they have? So it sounds like your thought process back then, I'm curious to know if it's the same now, if it's changed, was, you know, get a score that you feel comfortable with before you apply. Yeah. You know, I knew that the threshold I needed to do was better than, was more than 24. And nowadays that would be a five, that would be a 496 or 498. And so on my last attempt, I scored a 27, which would be about a 502 or a 503 today. Interesting. So is that um we're gonna get back on topic, but but just for the you know for the for the pre-meds listen, um, is that the same threshold? Do you, is there a threshold you tell students now, a general threshold before they apply, or do you kind of stay away from putting numbers out for them? I tell students to do their best. Okay. You know, that's what I tell them to do. You know, they say, well, should I score a 500 or a 503? I say, why, why aim so low? Go for the best. Do the best that you can, and then we'll figure out where that score will allow you to apply. Okay, excellent. I love it. I love it. My bad. I didn't, didn't mean to derail too much, Kay. Uh, oh, that's all good. Oh, that's, yeah. a, that's an important point to make. Um. 
So, you know, I, one of the things I forgot to tell you is when I was growing up, that was the era of Muhammad Ali. And, you know, Muhammad Ali was the champ, right? Oh, yeah. So I had a doctor that was in my church. And every time he saw me, he said, hey, champ, how you doing? You doing well in your school, champ? How you grades? And every time he kept calling me champ, it kept making me feel like I was Muhammad Ali. Hmm. And that was one of the that was one of the external outside of my family um, role models that I said I wanted to emulate. I said I want to be like Dr. Al. Um, hmm. And and just because and it was just a simple thing. It's amazing how you can motivate people and you don't even know it. Because all he was just he was just making conversation with me, and, and I come to find out he called everybody champ. But I, <laughs> I I took it personally. I thought he was really saying that I was going to be a champ in life, you know. Um, and so um, power in words, power in words. There's power. There is power in words. Speaking life into people is so important, Dale. Hmm. And that that's one of the things that I try to do as a mentor every day. I always remember him and how he spoke life into me. And I try to speak life into my people. Yeah, you do a good job at it. I'll tell you that from personal experience, you do a good job at it. Um, so you apply. So I, I only applied to, to two medical schools um, okay. because I knew that I only wanted to go in-state. You know, I was fortunate to have two in-state schools. And I was fortunate enough to get into one. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, all, that's all you need. That's all you need to be a doctor. It's just one. All you need is one. All you need is one person to say yes. And so my first year I, I did, you know, I studied, I had a frat brother that I studied with. Um, and every night we would study and then we would start partying. And then, you know, we get our test back and it seemed like I would score one score. He would score a score, another score and, and passing would be right in between us. And at hmm. the end of the first semester, I had passed three of my classes and I failed one. And at the end of that semester, he had failed three classes and only passed one. So he ended up being decelerated. And the point that, I'm sorry, I left out a point, and I'll get back to that. But what I learned at that particular point was I had to change my perspective. I had to change my perspective of thinking that the only way I'm going to get through this is by hanging out with people that look like me and that I'm friends with. I realized that we could start working with other people that did not look like me so I could start understanding different perspectives on the information, you know? And so um, I started looking for other people to start to work with. Um, And eventually I ended up moving into a house where I was the only black person. Um, There were six other people. It was like a mini UN. You know, there was a guy who was Chinese. There was a guy from Scotland. There was a guy from Switzerland. Uh, there was another guy who was Native American. There was another guy who was um, who was um, from Berkeley. Um, and then there was a guy from Canada. And then there was myself, the black guy. And every night we would study till about 10 o'clock at night, Dale. And we'd come out to this commons room in the house. And we'd have this great big massive quiz bowl. And the result of the quiz bowl would be, well, I would ask, the, I would try to stump them with the most esoteric fact that I had just studied, and they would try to stump me with that. And if you were stumped, they had to teach it to you, okay? Hmm. So what the effect of that was, was by the time we got to a test, we had asked so many questions around the information in, during those quiz bowls that there weren't too many questions on the exam that we didn't already have discussed. 
And so like a rising tide, it lifted all of our boats academically and our house did phenomenally academically. All right. So I got a, I got a, a couple things about that here. Um, the first thing is when I when I hear all that, you know, the word that comes to my mind is diversity. So I love that the house. Um, the second question I've got to ask is, and I think this is probably something that a lot of us deal with, is this, um, right? So you had a frat brother as your guy, and you guys lived together, didn't do as well as you wanted to. So you said, hey, I need to look at my network here. Now, but what does that do for your frat brother who some people might say, did you leave him behind? Um, like, what about his network? How do we make sure we, we pull up other people who look like us? How do we pull them up at the same time? Like, do you understand the, the conflict I feel? Yeah, no, I, I totally get it. And, and the way that I resolved that conflict is I shared my information. You know, when I got together with uh, some of my other classmates who were not living in my house, I did the same thing with them that I did in the house with everybody else. And what they started to do is they started to learn how to ask questions and look at the information differently. Um, and it was just a matter of, of, of being shown, shown that model of learning. Um, you know, many of us spend way too much time by ourselves. And we think mm -hmm. that we understand the information, but if we don't talk to somebody about it and, and teach it to somebody, then we don't really know where are the holes in our knowledge are. And so, you know, it's fortuitous that I, I came across that methodology that I, I started to use and it just, it just, it started to work really well for me. And I, I explained it to my classmates who were uh, of color um, and we utilized it when we got together and it helped them as well. So, in the end, what I was learning from my housemates, I was sharing with my with my classmates of color. So you were um, the way I view it. I see it as you were on an airplane. There was a there was a change in cabin pressure, and the mask fell down. And instead of you struggling and trying to put it on other people first, you said, "Hold on, let me get my mask on, make sure I'm right, so I can help everybody else." Exactly. Exactly. Perfect. Beautiful. Way to do it. Way to do it. So so I, I guess that was the turning point for you in med school then was and and I love it because, you know, that's one of the things and you, you I mean, you've heard my grind talk G's for goals, R's for reason, I's for information and it's for network. Right, so right. you you kid and then you made you made that network, you know, your focal point for a while to to bring you to a point in life where you wanted to be to be successful. Um, and, and I love what you said. And I, w I was going to go to this at the very beginning when you were talking about mentors who don't who didn't look like you. I love what you said about sometimes you, you, you do have to go out of what you're comfortable with. Yeah, you have to step, you have to step out of your comfort zone. Growth is growth begins when your comfort ends. Huh. Say that. Say that. Say that one more time so people can get it. Because let me process it, too. And so everybody listening can get that one. Growth begins when your comfort ends. Because hmm. as long as you're comfortable, you don't step outside of that bubble. You say, oh, I'm good. You become complacent. And complacency leads to stagnation. The only way to grow is to continue to make yourself uncomfortable. Keep putting yourself in uncomfortable situations. And soon that uncomfortable then becomes comfortable. And now you've gone up another level in your ability to, to either interact or to understand or to uh, assimilate information. And then after that, then you got to go look for the next uncomfortable comfortable thing for you, right? That's correct. That, that's how you grow and you learn, and that's how you learn to become a leader. I love it. Love it. All right, so then back to med school. So things are looking better academically. Now, what was... Um, 
um, two questions here. One of them is going to be a quick uh, little thing. I'm curious to know if you had any racial challenges while you were in your clinicals. And oh, totally. The next question. I- totally. Totally. All right. Okay, let's, 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 let's dive into that then. Let me, let me hear some of that and how, and how you dealt with it. So basically, as I said, I lived in that house. And I would, as I went out to do my clinical rotations, I would come back and tell my classmates how I was being treated on my clinical rotations. And they would just shake their heads and say, Cedric, I don't understand. You're one of the smartest people that we know. How in the world do they keep grading you with such bad grades? Um, you know, I, I started off on a surgery rotation. I got honors in my first rotation. I got honors in my second. I got a high pass in my third one. And then on my fourth one, I failed. And it was in general surgery. And I failed because I had a resident who I corrected one day, made the mistake of correcting a resident. And then on top of that, I had the audacity to bring in a book and show her that she was wrong. Uh, And that that just led to me. There was nothing I could do after that. There was nothing I could do right after that. And so I ended up failing that rotation. Um, and then I, you know, I did other rotations. I did well so, for so, most so, of those, but that that one was the one that kind of sunk me to have to repeat something over uh, during my clinical so rotations. Me, so let me dive in. You got man, you got so much, you got so much stuff in your story, Miss Crazy. Let me dive in on that one again because as you as you're saying these stories, I'm thinking like, hold on, I know I know a med student who's come to me with that issue. So students are dealing with that exact issue now, right? Um, where they might be on a rotation and and the there one is no, can I speak up against my senior? Can I say something? My resident says something wrong. Should I just be quiet or should I say what's right? Um, how does how would you recommend how would you what would you tell a student to do in that situation now? What would you tell yourself to do if you could give yourself advice? If I had that to do over again, I I would have I would have made the statement, but I wouldn't have brought in the book. Hmm. You okay. know? Because when you brought in the book, you add an insult to her injury. And, and, you know, when you're dealing with a, 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 at that particular time, this is the late 80s. This was a, a white female surgeon uh, who's trying to prove that she belongs in surgery to be challenged by a six foot five black male who said you wrong. Uh, the power dynamics was just all off, bro. It was just all off. Huh. And so, you know, you kind of have to recognize your power dynamics. And what I tell students now is you downplay for a season so that you can display for a lifetime. Ah, love it. Love it. Yeah, that's that, that, that man. See, see, I hope I hope the pre-meds and the and the med students and the residents and the fellows, you know, everybody is 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 getting this, you know, to be as successful as you'd like in medicine, you know, there's there's a level of emotional intelligence that goes into this stuff. Exactly. It's not it's not just who's the smartest, right? You have to know how to play the game. Yeah. And that's the key, Dale. So many of us don't know how to play the game. So many of us think that the world is fair. And that's why I'm so grateful to my teacher in the seventh grade to tell me the world is not fair, Cedric. And ever since then, I've always looked for things that were not fair. And I tried to realize it when I saw it and not and not say, oh, woe is me. But say, OK, how can I overcome this? Yeah, that's a that's a mindset to, and, and it takes time to develop that mindset, man. Like you said, you know that's something that you know, like I teach that stuff to my kids every day. You probably something like you I know you teach it to your kid now, and, I, and you probably had it when you were a child too. But again, that's like you said before, not every child gets taught that. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. It's tough to it's tough to figure that out when everybody else has been doing it for the past 25, 30 years already, and you just now stepping into the field. So uh, so, so back to um kind of wars challenges. Anything, what would you say was kind of was that your most challenging moment? Did you have anything more challenging than that? And then after that, what led you to what specialty did you choose and what led you towards that specialty? So um I had I had many instances while I was doing my training where I had white patients who said they did not want a nigga to take care of them. Uh, wow. And so, you know, until I got my MD, I just kind of left that up to my attendings to address. But once I got my MD and somebody said that to me, I said, well, you got two choices. You can either let me take care of you or you can die. And that usually mm-hmm. kind of ended those conversations after that because they, they realized that I was serious, but I was serious that I was going to take care of. Um, and I did just that. You know, I, I took care of Klansmen. I've taken care of of mafia people. Uh, I've taken care of some of the worst races that I've, I've ever been around. But at the same time, I did not deter, let that deter me from giving them the best care that I knew how to give. Um, and so that's kind of the clinical aspect of that. You know, um, the tough part about med school is that, and, and just hear me on this, it is a, it's a Charles Dickens novel. It's the best of times. It was the worst of times. If you ask a lot of majority students about their experiences in med schools, they would tell you it was great. But when you ask a lot of minority students when we go through medical school, it's not great. It's a challenge. It's a challenge of our intestinal fortitude. It's a challenge of our our resilience. Uh, And it's just it's going to occur because we are trying to assimilate into a profession that was not made for us. A profession that people say we are not we are not made for. Hmm. And so we have to, we have to swim against the current and we have to be ready for that. And for so many young students I see now who are coming through medical school and they get hit by this, you know, it devastates them because they thought we were in a post-racial society. And as a newsflash folks, after this year, I think everybody's pretty much aware that we're no longer in a post-racial society. We never were in a post-racial society. So you have to come in and... I'm not, uh, hey, I'm not sure everybody's figured it out yet. No, I mean, for us as Black people, we need to know that. We need to yeah, yeah, we know that. And so, you know, we have to come in and we have to wear the armor and understand that we, that we need a breastplate and that we need a sword and we need a belt and we need the shoes and we need the shield. And, and we, and we got to know whose we are. Because as long as you can stay grounded, you can you can you can attain it. You can get through it. Yeah, man. People, like you said, people need to know that. People need to hear that because, like you said, I, I know you see it. I see it. Right, these students come in med school and they don't realize it until they get smacked in the face. And what people don't people don't realize, like these things, like imposter syndrome, they don't realize how real those are. Those are almost tangible things. Uh, I mean. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not a super veteran in the game, but I finished med school in 2010. So I've been practicing doing so for a bit now, not too long, but you know, for long enough to long enough where I would say that I, I wish I didn't have to feel that imposter syndrome sometimes. Still, there's still times where I'm at the table and it takes all the courage in the world for me to speak up and it's hard to speak up for some things, you know, yeah. but you got to yeah. do it. But yeah, well, you know, Dale, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I struggled with imposter syndrome my whole first semester of med school. And, and despite the fact that Dell, when I applied to medical school, I had one simple prayer. And I said, Lord, 
Don't let me get into medical school if I'm not going to get out. Okay. Because that's to me would have been the most heinous thing that could have occurred to me that I got in and then I didn't finish. And so when I got in, I knew I was going to finish. Now the question was how, how was I going to do that? And so, you know, that whole first semester when I was just barely passing tests, I was just saying, Lord, what am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? How come I'm not getting the success that I need, that I want? Uh, But once I got past that first semester and I passed three of my classes and only failed one, that's when my imposter syndrome started to dissipate. Now, every step that I've gone since then, the imposter syndrome starts up again, you know, from from becoming, you know, my first faculty position to when I got recruited to Duke and I started working at Duke in the VA, I had imposter syndrome there because now all of a sudden I was at a, a, a stronger academic center than where I've been for the last three years in a community setting. When I left Duke and went to Carolina in the role of an assistant dean, I was like, oh, they're going to find out that I really don't know what the heck that I'm doing. And and I just <laughs> figure all this out. And then now I'm down here at, as a dean, of associate dean. And I'm just like, it all started all over again. So imposter syndrome never leaves you. It never leaves you. But what you can do is learn not to allow it to paralyze you. You use your imposter syndrome to work harder. My mother always should tell me, if you're black, you got to be twice as good to be equal. Okay? And so I use my imposter syndrome to work twice as hard so I can be better. Yeah, I don't know. That's people need to hear that, man. And turn it into a positive. People need to hear that. So then, um, all right, clinicals happened, and then what? What drove you towards your specialty? What was the interest that drove you towards, um, total medicine? What drove you towards it? it I went toward internal medicine because everybody consulted internal medicine. What I saw was if a surgeon had a problem with a patient, he say consult medicine. If an OBGYN had a problem with a patient, they would say consult medicine. Uh, if a family medicine had a doc, a problem that they couldn't figure out, they would consult internal medicine. And so I figured out that internal medicine was the hub of a wheel with which all the subspecialties went out to as spokes. Hmm. And so I decided that internal medicine was the fit for me because I wanted to be the one that had all the knowledge. So with that choice now, what clinically you're... Um career fulfillment how was your career fulfillment with that decision for internal medicine you know we uh, black men and white coast so even though i'm an internist and I, i'm a critical care pulmonologist i'm not pitching internal medicine here so people who listen to the podcast know we have everybody we've got thoracic surgeons trauma surgeons anesthesiologists. everybody comes on the show right but i, I do want to know what what is your specific career satisfaction like with that choice of internal medicine well when i finished my residency program i had a choice to determine whether i wanted to become a subspecialty or I could stay as a general internal medicine physician. I actually did a general internal medicine residency program, which, you know, I spent more time doing outpatient medicine than I did doing inpatient medicine. Uh, But I thought long and hard about becoming a pulmonary critical care uh, fellow and doing that and, and, uh, or becoming a cardiologist. But then I kind of realized that I would have a limited scope of knowledge that all of this general information that I know about everything, I would lose because I would be focused so much on only one subject matter, or as I called it, I become an organ. You know, and I didn't. I decided I didn't want to become an organ. I like the aspect 
of being the person that makes the diagnosis and then sends it to the specialist as opposed to the person that already has the diagnosis made for me and I just got to treat it. Nice, nice. I love it. Love it. So, um, you know, we got, I've got a lot of great stuff in your story, man. I, I know we can't be out here forever, so I'm, I'm going to start trying to bring this thing home. And I know we're only, we just made it to the beginning of your professional career. So that's why I'm about to bring you back for some more. But before we hop off, let me, let me dive into some things that people, um, you know, questions that maybe we don't think about so much that we don't get the opportunity to ask people like you all the time. I mean, I talk to you often, but other people who, who don't. Um, so you're the president of the National Medical Association. Um, and I, I don't know, we don't necessarily need like a long history of what the NMA is, but talk about, you know, this idea of, of black physicians needing to organize and be unified and have a voice and what that can do for the profession of medicine. But more importantly, you know, why is an organization like the NMA important for patient care? This, you know, black physicians working together, that general concept, because I know you see it and I see it. And sometimes you know, I hate saying things like this, but sometimes every now and then you wonder, man, is this, is this, a, what's this, crabs in a, in a barrel type of thing or something, you know, and, and how do we work better together and what does that do for our ultimate goal of patient care and for the community in, at large? Great question. And so my short answer on that, Dale, is, is because of COVID-19. And what have we seen with COVID-19? We've seen it disproportionately impact communities of color. We've seen black patients go to emergency rooms and get refused care, refused testing. We've seen patients sent home to die. That doesn't happen if the physician is different. It doesn't happen if somebody is there that can understand what you're going through. It doesn't happen if there's somebody there that can actually connect with you, when they can actually understand and, and empathize and be able to treat you as the person that you are and not treat you for the color that you present. And so that's why black doctors are so important. The NMA is important because the AMA refused to allow black physicians to be part of their network all the way up into the 1970s. They had a formal policy of exclusion that started in 1870 for blacks and women for the AMA. They did not allow blacks to be a part of the AMA into the 1970s. Well, after we, after we picketed in front of their headquarters in Chicago, that's when we finally were able to become a part of the, a, of the AMA. Um, and for, but, for, for the, for the younger, younger people listening and for the parents, the AMA is just American Medical Association. Um, so it's the Association for Doctors and NMA is the National Medical Association, but that's the, the African-American um, physician organization, essentially. Right. And so we act as the conscious for America. When, when, when the federal government was trying to think about how do we take care of seniors and they came up with Medicare and Medicaid, the NMA, the National Medical Association, was the only medical association that, that uh, advocated for the, for the beginning of Medicare and Medicaid. And so, oh, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, and so we were instrumental in that. Uh, and, and we've always advocated for our patients for the least, the lost, and the left out. And the left out. That's who we advocate for. That's who we treat. And so that's why it's so important that we have black, young, our young black folks as they're kind of long, new young black physicians as they come through. They need to become part of the NMA because the NMA will become theirs in the future. Yes, you have opportunities to go every place else that you want to. 
but there's not going to be any place else that's going to focus on the issues that impact you and your community, like the National Medical Association. Yeah, I actually just renewed my membership a couple months ago. Um, um, so what made you want to be the president of the NMA, right? Because that's a, that's a big thing, right? You're the president of this big, large organization that has so much, um, you know, direct and indirect influence on societal outcomes. What made you say, hey, you know what, I want to be the president of the NMA? Actually, Dale, I didn't. I didn't want to be president of the NMA. Other people wanted me to become the president of the NMA. Um, and I, I had ro- risen through the ranks to become the Speaker of the House of Delegates. And then I promised my wife that I wasn't going to run for anything else. And then um, just so happened they, that somebody nominated me from the floor uh, during our convention, um, and I won. Um, and I didn't. I didn't campaign for it. I didn't ask for it. Somebody just. So you kept your. So you you kept you kept your promise to your wife technically because you didn't run for it. You got nominated, and it's kind of like, yeah, I'm already here. Yeah, well, I mean, I didn't. I didn't ask for them to nominate me either. They, somebody came to me and said, "We're going to do this. Will you accept it if we do?" And I had five minutes to make that decision, and I, I said, "Okay, sure." I mean, I didn't think I was going to win. But, you know, it just goes to show you never know when God's going to give you that favor. Hmm. And so I won from the floor and became the 112th president of the National Medical Association. That's awesome. Um, all right. Now, let's do some imparting words. I'm going to take it level by level. OK, and um, if you're cool with this, I want to I want to do one of those things. You know, what would you tell this? What would you tell this? So I'm going to start with the, the kids who were elementary through high school what would you tell yourself or would you what would you tell a student who's elementary through high school that might say hey dr brown i want to be a physician and you know in a short snippet three four sentences what would you tell tell that student develop your discipline learn how to how to do a short-term sacrifice for a long-term gain all right, let's move to the next level. What would you tell the, the college and post-bac student? That a, a, that, a, a, that a failure, a, that a setback is a setup for a comeback. Okay. And the last one I'll do is um, what about the med students and the resident? The med students and residents, downplay for a season so that you can display for a lifetime. Boom. I love it. Dr. Cedric Bright. And those of you, well, you guys figured it out from the episode, but those of you who didn't know that, Dr. Bright be dropping jewels. <laughs> he drops jewels. We were, when we, I, I never told you, when we when we were filming you for the documentary, um, Mike, our director for the documentary, he came back, he was like, man, Dr. Bright got all these sayings. Like, we can't put them all in the film. I was like, I know we can't because we got too many people to put all of it, but I'll tell you, Dr. Bright, having gone back and seen everything you said in the film, there were just jewel after jewel after jewel after jewel. I was like, goodness gracious, he is making a diamond necklace out here. <laughs> but uh, it, was, uh, it was good. We could, I, I wish we could put it in everything, but of course we couldn't do all that. But, but it was good, man. You, how, how you feeling about this film? Are you excited? I know you guys are going to be, you guys will be having a, a virtual hosting at your institution. What are, what are you thinking? What's it feel like? Well, we're excited to do it. We're hoping to to, to uh, work together with uh, with uh, some other folks here in the state and uh, 
and have a, a really big turnout of folks to to watch the film and then have a great discussion afterwards of hopefully you know that you'll be able to participate in and, and maybe one or two other folks who are part of the film and um and just get some people to give us some reactions to what they think about the film i'm really excited to see it yeah you know it's just a springboard so i mean the film is just uh is just uh to really spark that conversation again black history month and things like that and that's just going to be a springboard for more things to come you know hopefully you know programs will get a little bit more serious about this and that's why we did it man that's why we did it but Dr. Cedric Bright, super excited. I appreciate you, my mentor, my friend, um, brilliant guy all around. I appreciate you for taking the time. I, I know we talked about doing it for 30 minutes, but we're hitting the hour mark. I've been watching this clock keep going. I was like, how long are we going to go? But I thank you for, <laughs> for indulging me, Dale. I do thank you for indulging me. No, I mean, your story is one of the ones, like I said, man. I know you listen to other people's stories all the time because you have so many pre-meds and med students and young docs come come up to you and they talk to you and they, they're telling you their stories and they need help. So, you know, I think it's good for them to hear your story. And I think hearing your story will give them perspective on on their life. So, Dr. Cedric Brad, I appreciate you being out here. I love you as a brother in the faith, as a mentor and everything. And and for everybody listening, I appreciate you guys. Black men and white coats. Um, those of you who are pre-med, check out premedmondays.com. Check out the site, Black Men and White Coats. .org connects with a lot of us on diversemedicine.com. We have so many resources we give out there for you guys to take advantage of them, grab copies of the book, register for the summit, and definitely make sure you check out the documentary when it drops in February. Black Men and White Coats, love you guys. Thanks for listening. I'm on them band like a daddy, yeah. Only do it like flagger, yeah. I'm kicking flavor, no saga, yeah. Ay, I like them blues. I might go Janet like Jackson. I got the margin, yeah. It's all about progression. Life is like a blessing. Everything a win, loss is like a lesson. Ooh, ooh. Yeah, ain't no time for stressing. I've been really stepping. Ooh, ooh. Yeah, if you wanna go get